an old commentator named Matthew Henry said, If man is the head, she is the crown, a crown to her husband, the crown of the visible creation. The man was dust refined, but the woman was dust double refined, one removed further from the earth. Genesis 2, verses 8 through 25. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man when he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Avila, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, but Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, corresponding to him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him that corresponded to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made, built, into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. Christianity. He, he deals with gender in that. And I like the way uh, he starts this section. And so I want to start with that. And he kind of starts it with a, a joke, so maybe that'll help a little bit as we, we jump into this. It says, a schoolgirl was once asked to write an essay on why women outnumber men in the world. And so this is what she wrote. God made Adam first. And when he had finished, he looked at him and said to himself, well, I think I could do better than that if I tried again. So then she made Eve. And God liked Eve so much better than Adam that he's been making more women than men ever since. So there you go. There's your explanation. 
Well, he goes on, he says, this self-confident feminism of that young girl stands out in a strong relief against the prevailing attitudes of the centuries. For there is no doubt that in many cultures, women have habitually been despised and demeaned by men. They have often been treated as mere playthings and sex objects, as unpaid cooks, housekeepers, and childminders, and as brainless simpletons incapable of engaging in irrational discussion. Their gifts have been unappreciated, their personality smothered, their freedom curtailed, and their service in some areas exploited, and others just simply refused. I think that's a pretty accurate picture when you go back through history and how the different cultures have treated women. One of the things I hope you see as you go through Scripture is that that is not God's design. And sometimes what we see really is is the pendulum kind of shifts from one side and maybe tries to go all the way to another side, but somewhere we've got to find the balance of what God has to say and what we know is is right. And so we look at, at God's Word and we, we ask it to guide us and direct us. And I have to be honest with you, when I go into Scripture and I look at some of these issues, I've got a lot of presuppositions that I bring to the table, right? I, I grew up a certain way, and, and so I have an idea in my head. And then I have my own marriage that I've had for uh, 18, almost 19 years. And then, you know, I've got uh, other things in the culture, things that I read and, and so forth. And when you put all that together, sometimes you come up with ideas that really God's Word doesn't have anything to say or address. And so when we come to God's Word, again, I want to make the same request I made last week. First, my promise to you is I want to approach Scripture with as much honesty and clarity as I can, and I hope that you do the same, because we really want to look at what God's Word has to say and learn from it. And so that's what we want to do as we, we jump into this context this morning, I jump into this topic this morning. Um, that's what John Stott has to say. Now, as you talk about the background and you look at going through history, I want to just bring a couple other thoughts along the way. Plato lived around 425. There's a question mark there because there's some, some varying opinions as to when he was born to about 348. Now, a lot of people think, okay, he's kind of a, a father figure of some kind to, to Western philosophy and so forth. So you think, oh, well, he's got something good to say, right? But it's interesting when you go back and look at guys like Plato and their view on women. Here's what he had to say. This is put together from research by R.G. Berry. It says that uh, Plato believed that the soul is both imprisoned in the body and released to be reincarnated. And he went on to say or suggest that a bad man's fate would be reincarnation as a woman. That's not very flattering, is it? Okay, this is a, a philosopher at that time. Now, Aristotle, of course, he's going to bring some, some light to the subject. Uh, a little bit after Plato here. This is what he had to say. He's known as the father of biology. He said, things like females are a kind of mutilated male, and females are imperfect males, accidentally produced by the father's inadequacy or by the malign influence of a moist south wind. Wow. Can you get more degrading and more demeaning? So then you have the Jewish Talmud. So this would have been the time when Jesus was, was walking around on the earth, and, and this is the, the outlook, so to speak, that the Jews had towards, towards women. Okay, it would have been written down, and here's some prayers. This is put by, uh, summarized by William Barclay. It says, uh, 
The Jewish form of morning prayer would go something like this. A Jewish man every morning would give thanks to God that he was not made a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So, by the time Jesus comes onto the scene, okay, now this, this is exactly what you know, John Stott was talking about. Look at the way the different cultures treated women in the past, right? By the time Jesus comes onto the scene, I, I want you to understand and show you in Scripture that what Jesus had to say was rather revolutionary. Because look at some of the things he talked about. Now, this was the church. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the one that commanded the church. Here's what he has to say in Galatians 3, 27 to 28. It says, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, in that culture, first and foremost, if you were a Jew and you read something like that, you would say, wait a minute, I'm Jew, I'm superior to Greeks. And the Greeks would actually say, I'm a Greek, I'm superior to Jews. So he's trying to tear down that barrier. Then he goes to the slave or the free, and the free would say, hey, we're free, we are superior to slaves. And in a male-dominated society like this, you definitely have men that would say, no, we're superior to women. And so when Paul writes this to the church, he says, hey, you guys are all on the same team. You guys are all working together. You guys are all the same. In Christ, there's no distinction. Male or female, slave, free, Greek or Jew, it's all the same in Christ. That was a revolutionary teaching in his day. Look at some other things. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, this in the context here. If you go back to it, he's talking about uh, being married and, and if... Uh, a believer is married to an unbeliever. He says, if that unbeliever is willing to live with the believer, they should go ahead and stay together. And then he gives this rationale as he goes forward. It says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, that's a whole different topic, which we'd have to dive into and that would take some time. But I want to capture this in verse 16. It says, wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. And husband, for all you know, you might save your wife. Now, you might look at that and go, well, what's the point here? And and this is the point I want to draw out from it. The most important thing that anybody can do on this earth is lead someone to Christ and be the witness and example. That you will make the greatest impact, you will make an eternal impact on people around you by leading them to Christ. And it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, you can lead somebody to Christ. Know that. Scripture makes it clear. Wives, you can lead your husbands to the Lord. Husbands, you can lead your wives to the Lord. Women, you can lead men to the Lord. Men, you can lead women to the Lord. That's the most important thing. So understand that when you're talking about impact and people will say that, well, how does God value me? What's my impact? And all that sort of thing. This is it. You can, regardless of what sex you are, you can lead someone to the Lord. And that is the most important thing you can do. So remember that. Okay? Jesus says it. He makes it clear in his church. 1 Corinthians 7. You can do that. You'll also see some other things that Jesus did. If you go back through his life and, and we can look at, at, at how he interacted with people, here's a few things to consider. Jesus talked to the woman at the well. Uh, this is a Samaritan first, and he was a Jew, and they wouldn't talk to each other. Secondly, she was a woman, and Jesus wouldn't go up. Typically, a man wouldn't go up. A Jewish man teacher wouldn't go up and talk to a woman, but he does. 
because he saw that there was value. He cared for her. He loved her. He said, I want to share with you the truth. And so he does. And so he talks to the woman at the well. Here's another example. Jesus stood up for the woman caught in adultery. John chapter 8, when they come and they bring this woman and the Pharisees are like, hey, Jesus, what are you going to do? Are you going to stone her and put her to death and condemn her? And Jesus stands up for her. Because he saw her as a human being, not just someone that to be put to death, but as a real human being. And he loved her and he cared for her. Jesus was prepared for burial by a woman. Mary comes and pours perfume on his, his feet and takes her hair and, and starts to, to wipe his, his feet and just prepare him. And that's what he was supposed to be done, right? Put, put perfume all over his body. And so she comes and does this. Jesus is prepared for burial by a woman. And then don't forget, Jesus was born of a woman. They say, okay, well, if he's going to be born, of course he's born of a woman, right? Now, I mean, maybe in God's sovereignty, he, he could have said, you know what, I'm just going to drop Jesus on the earth. He's going to be fully God, fully man, and do it that way. But instead, he chooses to have Mary give birth to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So women have always played an important role in God's design and in God's church. So I hope you understand that as, you, as we continue to move forward. At the same time, there are certain roles and things uh, we're going to get to. So as we, we look at uh, the, the issue of gender, more than just gender equality comes up. Today in our, our world, there's topics like gender identity and gender orientation that also comes up. So gender identity is simply this. When you are born, you're starting to grow up, and, and say you're a boy, you start to think to yourself, you know, I seem to relate better with girls. I feel like a girl, therefore I identify myself as a girl. And we see this more and more written about in schools, new me- news media, and things like that. So you identify yourself as something different than what you grew up or what physically you are. Orientation is you are attracted to the same sex or opposite sex. And so a lot of this, obviously, in the last 10, 15, 20 years has really come to the surface for our society and for the church. How do you deal with those types of things? So we'll get to that, but really to understand and and talk about those three things, we've got to talk about the root and what things are plugged into. What is God's design? If this tree is going to grow up and it's going to give fruit, Let's talk about where it comes from. And so that's what I want to spend more of our time talking about this morning and, and really establishing ourselves in God's Word and what it firmly says because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't always seem real clear in some of those other areas. But if we understand His order and His purpose and the way He created things, I think those other things become a lot more clear for us. So we're going to dig into to God's Word and look at some of the things it has to say about that root and what we're plugged into. Let's go ahead and uh, pray as we look at, before we dig into to Genesis here. Father, we are, are mindful of the fact that you are God, and we're not. So, Lord, as we come into Genesis, we want you to teach us and guide us. Lord, as we look at some, really some difficult scriptures today, and what our society sees maybe as offensive or intolerant, help us to just to understand what it is you're teaching us. Guide us and direct us. Lord, may we approach you with all honesty, sincerity, and with humility. Teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Tim uh, read part of this passage already. Let's go ahead and look at it again uh, in detail. Verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2, it says, The Lord God took the man 
and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So when Adam was created, he was created from the dust, and God put him into the garden. He specifically tells him, this is the command, Adam, it's your responsibility to not eat from that tree. This is important, and I think this is why Moses, as he's writing this, and why God directs him, he says this to Adam and Adam. Adam is the one that's held responsible. You can read about it in Romans, in the New Testament even more. It says, by Adam, sin entered into the world. God held Adam responsible for that, even though Eve also took of the tree. He goes on, he says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. Now, helper, some translations use helpmate. Oftentimes when people read that, they go, Well, that's, that's not as, as good of a word as God could have used. I mean, couldn't he have made a more complimentary word here? Right? Helper. What's a helper? That sounds like almost like a slave or something like that, right? But I want you to look at other uses of this word. Because when you go into Scripture, you're going to see it's only used about 20 times. And more often than not, it's used to describe the characteristic of God. So check out some of these verses. Verse 26 of Deuteronomy 33, it says, There is no one like the God of Israel. He rides across the heavens to help you. It's the same word that's used to describe women across the skies in majestic splendor. That's, that's pretty flattering when you put it that way, right? God rides across the skies in majestic splendor as, as your helper. Men, do you see your, your wives that way? I can definitely see my wife that way because there are times I'm like, Rebecca, and she's like, pops out of nowhere, and there she is, you know. Majestic splendor. Um, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Okay? Again, describing who God is as our help. That's the same word that's used to describe women in the Genesis 2 context. And then this one in Psalm 121, it says, I lift my eyes toward the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So just a, a few examples, and there's many more, of where God is seen as a helper. And when he creates Eve, he says, you are a helper. You are carrying out the characteristic of God. So let's go back to that Genesis 2 passage, verse 19. It says, so the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky. So you take a little bit of a parenthetical statement here. God comes and says, okay, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper. And now he sets up the stage. And I don't think God did this by accident. You need to understand this, right? God knew that he created every animal with a male and a female. And he knew that Adam didn't have Eve yet. And so he uses this as a way to teach Adam. So look what he does. He formed out of the ground every wild animal and and the bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whenever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Now you know, this is just a side joke, but you know that because his wife wasn't there yet, he didn't remember their names, right? (laughs) Nobody was there to write it down on a list or anything like that. But at this point, he goes, no, I'm just kidding. He had a better brain at that point than we do, that's for sure. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper 
was found at his compliment. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept, and God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and, and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. And he really goes back. He says, Adam and Eve were one flesh. Now, today, when, when men and women, when they get married, they become one flesh to demonstrate that. And then he goes on, verse 25 says, Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. You may read that and go, well, that was, that's kind of a strange you know, verse to, to throw in there. But that really sets you up for chapter 3 when the fall comes. And the first thing they noticed when they fell, when they took of the fruit, is that they were naked, and then they were ashamed. I think the picture there is before they were outward, they were seeing God's awesome creation and everything that was good. And as soon as they ate, they began to think inwardly selfishly. And they saw, oh, I messed up. And then they felt ashamed. So anyhow, that kind of sets the stage, gives us a little bit of idea of of how this works. And what we begin to see really in this situation is, is that God has order. When you look at all of creation, you can clearly see that God has a purpose and a plan and an order. And one of the things you see right off the bat is that God created one for his own pleasure. Don't get me wrong, I don't want to skip over that. But God created the things he created for man to enjoy and rule. And you might, see, you might not see this right away, but I think as you, you go through Genesis 1 and 2, you see really Adam is the pinnacle of his creation. Like he forms him from dust and he brings him up and he says, this is my image. But also notice, if you look at the context, he says man and woman are created in his image. And so as he creates Adam, he sets the stage and he says, Adam, I want you to see how important it is that you have someone to come along and compliment you. And that's why he brings Eve, the complimentary piece, to Adam. And this is the order that's set up. So just simply put, I mean, you, you can see that God has a purpose and a plan for all of this. So as you look at how it all works in the structure, one of the things you want to be clear about is as, as you look at all of Scripture... God values both men and women. Both are equal, both men and women. Both are created in the image of God, both men and women. God um, has a purpose and a plan for both men and women. At the same time, God has roles specifically for both men and women. And sometimes this is where you say, oh, okay, now we're going to get into something more difficult, complicated, right? But here's one thing that's really important to understand. Because God has order, there's also roles that go with that order. And you see it all throughout God's creation. In fact, you see it just in the existence of who God is. God who is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father who is over the Son, who is over the Holy Spirit. All equal, all God, but yet they have this relationship and it has order to it. So at home, I can share a little bit about just my family and our history and so forth. Uh, at home, I'm the head of, of our home. And you can look at Scripture, and you can go through that, and you can see Ephesians and so forth, that that's just the way God designed it and created it. I'm the head of our home. What does that mean? Now, as you look at it, you can go back um, through a lot of different, like I say, interpretations, and people will try to say, well, that was just a cultural norm at one time. And today it's different. But if you look at the order that God created and the order that God put things in, you have to say, you know what, I don't think that is 
something that is cultural. I think that is something that God has set up as a standard. Now, over the years, it's been abused. Absolutely. But if done right, it's a beautiful thing. Now, I'm not going to tell you that I'm I'm a perfect husband. I'm not going to tell you that in our house it's done perfectly, but we certainly try. And so, like in our house, what does it look like? Well, it means that I'm the head of the house, so I submit to Christ, and I then become responsible for my family and my family's well-being, both spiritually, physically, and so forth. But my wife and I, were a team. And I don't see myself as one who's just going to tell her exactly what to do. In fact, as we've gone through the years, you know, 18, 19 years into it, there are things that we don't even discuss. Like, she just goes out and does because she knows over time, hey, we have that freedom, we have that responsibility, we know how each other's work and so forth. So it's not like, you know, you rule over each other with an iron fist or anything like that. But one thing that becomes really clear as our family continues to move along is that any time major changes come up, we discuss, and I become responsible for decisions that are made. And the biggest thing I'd like you to take home, especially men, as I talk to you, okay, men, is you're leading your homes. When those decisions are made, it's your responsibility, or it's your role to take responsibility for those decisions. I think that's sometimes where we fail as, as men. We kind of sit back and we go, oh, let's just take a back seat to it. But it's my responsibility. If, if the family begins to drift and fall away from the Lord, guess whose responsibility that is? It's mine. If I'm not caring for my, my wife and make sure her needs are cared for, it's my responsibility. It's not hers. I can't blame it on her. It's my responsibility because I'm leading the home. So, men, we, we need to lead. We need to, to guide our families. One of the reasons why men's discipleship, I think, is so important in a church because, men, we need to hold each other accountable to lead our families and be strong. And I also know this. Wives appreciate it when we lead and lead well. And they don't find it to be a problem if we lead and lead well. So that's just a little bit of maybe how it works in, in our family and and just want to share with you a little bit of that because I think this question comes up. Men uh, can be church leaders like elders and deacons and how can, how can women, you know, when you have this structure of maybe men be the head of the house or in the church, men be, you know, in leadership, how can, how can women make an impact? How can women make an impact in the home? How can women make an impact in the church? Or even this, how can men who are not called into church leadership make an impact as well. All men are called to lead, lead their families and everything like that. But some men are called into church leadership, some are not. Why God does that, I don't know. I think sometimes as a church we've done a disservice because we think, oh, well, only the spiritually mature can be leaders. Or you are spiritually mature if you become a leader. No, you're spiritually mature if you live out your gifts that God has given you. So, if, if this is a question in your mind, well, how can I make an impact if I'm not a church leader? I hope to be able to answer that by just giving you a list and helping you see that if, you know, if, if you're a woman, whether you're married or not, single and so forth, you can, you can serve in the church and, be, uh, and have a great impact on people's lives. So here's a couple of options. Uh, women's discipleship, uh, children and youth ministry. Now, oftentimes people go, oh, children's ministry. Yeah, women always get stuck with children's ministry, right? It's very common. 
Unfortunately, our society has downplayed a mom's role and value. And I hope you hear this, mothers, I hope you hear this clear, clearly, because I already spoke to the, the men and maybe chastised them a little bit. But to moms, you need to understand, women, you need to understand that you have the greatest impact on children. And honestly, you have the greatest impact on the future leaders of the church and our nation. Unfortunately, our society doesn't see it that way. I understand that they see the educational system as having the greatest impact. But you should have the biggest impact on our children. Don't let society downplay that. So, the kids that are growing up today, the kids that are back you know, in, in, you know, in our hallways back here, in classrooms, they're growing up, hopefully with, with women who are pouring into them and teaching them. And there's some men, but I can tell you that yesterday we did foster family relief here, and, and there were, I think Tim and I were the only guys. Um, the ladies just, kids come in, they connect, they're holding them, they're playing with them. Tim was doing an awesome job. I just, I, sometimes I kind of take a backseat. I kind of tend to work better with older kids and so forth. But women just can, can do that. They have the mothering, nurturing, loving care to do that. So don't sell yourself short with that. That is a huge, huge ministry. And it's extremely important. Okay, so worship team, first impressions, set up teardown crew, uh, co-leading classes, uh, outreach team, activities, team leaders. So uh, yeah, there's, there's elders and deacons in the church, but there's also team leaders where they have people that they're working with. Uh, Camp Pinewood ministry, but certainly don't forget about this one. Whether you're a man or a woman, you can always pray. The church needs prayer. We all need prayer. And that one's extremely important. So various ways, and there's many more that people can get plugged in. Question also comes up as we look at gender. Was the Bible written primarily by men in a male-dominated society? Okay. And the answer is yes, it was. So if that's the case, oops, let's go back to this one. Uh, isn't it possible that roles established in the Bible for men and women are based in culture and can now be altered because our culture has changed? That's a question that comes up quite often. And you're going to find many people that will use the Bible and will say, yes, it can. However, as you look at some scriptures, and this takes us into maybe one of the most difficult passages on the subject. Uh, as you look at scripture, Paul, and trust by the Holy Spirit, makes some arguments that are non-cultural. So let's take a look at this. This is coming out of 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. Not a very popular passage. It says, Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Apparently, and we're going to look at a little more context, but apparently some guys were going around and, and lifting up their hands with anger. And he reverses it and says, lift up your hands in prayer and forget the anger. Okay? So, so I, want, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. It gives us, sets the stage a little bit and helps us understand that there's probably some, some issues that Paul is, is wrestling with here. Verse 9, it says, Also the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency and good sense, uh, not with elaborate hairstyles, gold, pearls, or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper for women who affirm that they worship God. Now, we looked a little bit at that last week. 
But we're going to continue on. Verse 11, a woman should learn in silence with full submission. Now, Paul, come on. Get up with the times, right? Well, in case you're not, you know, offended already, we'll move on to verse 12. It says, verse 12, I do not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Instead, she is to be silent. Man, he's getting harder here. In case, you know, it gets worse. Just a second. Verse 13 he goes on, and this is his non-cultural argument here. He says, For Adam was created first, then Eve. So go back to God's plan and his order and his design. You see, back in Genesis chapter 2, that was God's plan, that was order, that was design. Why does he bring this up? And this is where it probably hurts the worst. It says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. Now, I told you earlier that Romans holds Adam responsible. And you can read that in Romans chapter 5. It talks about how Adam brought sin into the world. Now Paul makes this argument and kind of picks on women and does something that sometimes we joke about when we say, oh, Eve, you're the one that really sinned. You're the one that took the, the fruit first. He brings this up, but he, he's doing it for a reason. Okay. Like I say, it's not a very easy passage. It's kind of a little offensive, right? Context. Context is important. He goes on, verse 15, and we'll get to that. says, uh, she will be saved through childbearing if she continues in faith, love, and holiness with good judgment. Now, verse 15, there are a lot of different ideas as to what that means. She will be saved through childbearing. I think the idea, probably the best explanation I've heard in this, is that a woman loves children. And loves raising child. I, now, you're, some of you are going to be like, okay, I don't. Or, it's, I mean, it's a general statement. Of course, there are single ladies out there that don't have children. Or there are mothers or there, there are married women who do not have children. I understand that. And so this is a general statement. At the same time, I have watched my wife uh, have five of our own children. We have a foster child right now. And then, by the way, I don't know if I've made this public or not. We just found out that we're having another child which was a bit of a surprise, so surprise to you as well. Um, I don't know why you're clapping. It wasn't like we planned that. So, so. Um, so one thing I've noticed with Rebecca is when she has a child, I, I'll kid her sometimes. I'll be like, you look like you have a glow about you. There's just, there's just like this glow. And I think it's true. Women do love children. And it's something that God has put in them uh, to be very nurturing. Context. Let's look at the context. Uh, 1 Timothy 1, 5 through 6. We want to go back and see what's happening here. Um, in this context, as Paul is dealing with Timothy, he's telling Timothy, hey, I know there's some issues going on with the people you're working with. Now, the goal of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and turned aside to fruitless discussion. It seems apparent that what's going on in, in this day and age or in this church that he's serving is that there was a lot of, of disagreement and arguing and, and so forth. You can continue on verse uh, 18 and 19. It says, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies previously made about you so that by recalling them, you might fight the good fight, having faith and good conscience. Some have rejected these and have shipwrecked their faith. And so as you begin to kind of see Timothy unfold in this letter to Timothy, Paul is realizing, hey, Timothy, you're dealing with some issues. And you even see there in that portion that we just read in 2 Timothy, or verse, 
second chapter of First Timothy, where it says men were, were raising their arms and arguing. And it seems like there was a lot of anger and there was problems. And what I think Paul's doing here in chapter 2 is he's talking to men and women. He says, we need to go back and, and establish some order. Because what's happening in that church, what's happening in that situation was not healthy. So I don't think he's saying in all situations women can't talk or speak up. Certainly if you're in a life group and, you know, there's a lot of discussion, men and women uh, in church like this, in our, our business meetings and things like that as we're having discussions, men and women are both talking. I don't think he's saying that. He's, but he, what he is saying is when things are progressing and things are getting out of control and there's chaos that's happening, we need to go back and establish some order. And so he establishes that order by saying, men, you are the head of the house. Men, you take your role and you fulfill that. And if there's issues going on, talk about it at home and then come back and let's talk about it like civilized people. And I think that's what the direction he's giving here. Well, hopefully you don't get in that situation here where we start getting so chaotic and out of control that we have to come back and say, all right, let's, let's look at what's going on. And let's reestablish this order. Instead, hopefully, we can mutually talk about things and, and things will be okay. But if, if need be, we've got to go back to it. Now, there are times in our family where dad has to put his foot down. And it's shocking, right? How can that happen to your family? No, really, it's true. You've got to put your foot down. Dad has to say, hey, all right, guys, stop talking. We've got to you know, establish some order. Things are getting chaotic. And that's my role in that situation. But I want to use that lightly and not be domineering. And I think that's a little bit what's happening here, the church that Paul's writing to, Timothy, and what he's dealing with. Timothy, put your foot down and establish some order. So in those kind of situations, that's why God gives us order. And as we look and go back to the tree and all the different things we deal with in gender, one of the things we need to go back to is what is God's original plan? What is God's design? What is God's order? And ask ourselves the question when it comes to gender equality, what does God want? Well, he sees that all of us are equal, but then there's order established. And that order is meant to help us not be so chaotic and out of control. Okay? And then there's identity. How did God create us? God created us male and female. He created Eve to be the complement of Adam. And he created men to be in relationship with women and women to be in relationship with men. Right? That's the order we see. And so when we go back to that, I think we see that it's clear what God's purpose and plan and order is. A couple more questions come up. I want to hit on them. Can a person be born with gender confusion? Because this is, you know, things we deal with in our society today. I'll ask a question like this. Actually deal with two questions. Are people born with an attraction for the same sex? Or are people born confused about their identity? Because you'll hear about that. Well, I was born, and I, I, for whatever reason, I grew up, and I just have an attraction for the same sex. And if that's the case, and if God created me that way, why would he say it's wrong? 
What if I was born and all of a sudden I, I'm confused about who I am and I think I should be a woman and, and then there's this chance, this opportunity for me to have that change? Is that wrong? If that's my desire. So those are things that you'll run into and I want to take you to a, a passage here that's not very familiar as well or very um, appreciated as well. But uh, this is out of 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9. It says, Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or any practicing homosexuality. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. When you look at that list, there's probably one or maybe two of those that jump out to you and you say, you know what, that's something I really struggle with. Now, why is that? I, I don't know. But I do know that some of you struggle with some things on there that I don't struggle with. And I struggle with some, some things on that list that you don't struggle with. It could have been the way I was raised. It could have been my makeup. You know, how God created me. It could have been the, the flesh and the desires that I've fed over the years and, and now fight against. I'm not really sure. But for whatever reason, there's something on that list that probably stands out to you that you say, man, I really struggle with that. And homosexuality might be one of those things. And so can a person be born with homosexual tendencies? Sure. But that doesn't make it right in God's eyes. Just like having greed or being a drunkard or being verbally abusive or an idolater, or an adulterer, or immoral, or any of those things wouldn't be right. Neither would practicing homosexuality. And there are believers out there that say, yes, I have a tendency to be homosexual. I know it's wrong. I bring it before the Lord. I confess it. And I try my best to fight it off. Just like any of us who struggle with any other sin. Here's the hope. Now, if you stop with that, you go, man, that's not a very uplifting verse. That's why I saved this one for last. Verse 11. Some of you used to be like this. Maybe all of us. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Every single one of us struggles with some sin. We could probably say multiple sins, right? The only way that any of us have a relationship with God the Father is through Jesus Christ. And that's it. He's the one that sanctifies and justifies. He's the one that washes all of our sin away. He's the one that continually washes when we fall into that sin again. And so if you struggle with, with gender equality and you're always feeling like you're wrestling in that area or you struggle with your own identity... You struggle with homosexuality. Any of these gender issues that we see popping up today, bring it before the Lord and know that he washes and cleanses us, but he also expects us to admit it's, it's not God's design. God's original design is male and female. That's his design, and that's what we accept as his design. And we identify it and we ask for his forgiveness. The other thing I'll, I'll say on this as well, is as we're reaching people, it can be 
difficult at times if you're, you know, looking at other people and seeing the, the sin that they get involved in. You'll say, you know, I just, I just have a hard time reaching people who may be dealing with homosexuality or something like that. It's not our job to go and try to convince them right, that, that they need to change. We're supposed to go and show them Jesus Christ and give them this truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead for their sins. And then let God do his thing. Let God penetrate the heart. Let God convict. Let God turn people over. He's the one that brings people to salvation, and he's the one that sanctifies and draws us to be more like him and helps us to see the truth for what it is. So we want to reach out to people and give them the love of Christ, share with them the gospel, help all to see that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And the answer is Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the truth and the reality that <clears throat> now this, is, this is something that we see more and more in, in our, our country, our nation. We're trying to deal with, we're trying to wrestle with how do, we, how do we take the gospel and give it to people who are dealing with these issues and and see sometimes the, the Bible and see the Christians as offensive because we don't sign off on their choice of, of lifestyle. But help us to have grace and compassion and know how to talk to people who, who maybe we do see as, as living in a, in a way that's contrary to your word. Help us to, to love them and care for them and give them the gospel because we know that that's truly what changes people's lives. Thank you that you've changed our life. Lord, if there's somebody here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior and they're struggling, I pray, God, that you would impact their heart today, that, that they would leave this place asking more questions or they'd leave this place changed because they've placed their faith in you. That's something only the Holy Spirit can do. So we, we ask, we beg, and plead your Holy Spirit will convict us to turn to you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for <clears throat> working through that. Again, if you'd like to go to Life Group this week, you can discuss that more in your, your Life Groups. Um, if you have questions, feel free. You can talk to me afterwards. Uh, I'd love to talk to you more about what God's Word has to say. And, uh, yeah, I hope that you're, you're learning through these, uh, these taboo topics. Maybe challenging. But, but certainly is, is necessary for us to struggle through. We're going to close, uh, take offering, uh, sing this last song. Again, thank you for your support for, for Involved Church. We are blessed because of you guys, and we want to continue to do ministry out in Nampa area. Pray for us as, uh, as a church as we continue to serve.